This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis and he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell and we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising object oozing with unexpected historical significance and this week it's the bed which is all about the bed as the entrance into and exit from the world. It's the birthing chamber and the deathbed. For me, it's about temporary beds and bedding. It's about military campaigns and mobility. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. We're proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss, and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 11 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the history of dreams, wax, or the seed. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the party... It's not all about birthday candles. It's all really all about insanity. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Or that the history of dinosaurs is, in fact, all about religion. I think that's a little bit... We've got to work on that we've one. Got to, it is. No, it is. It's also all about um, geology. That's a brilliant one, especially yeah. with the Southwest, because you people go exploring for dinosaurs in the Southwest Coast Pass, even the now. Jurassic Coast. Right, let's do dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. <laughs> Note that down. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Um, the man sitting opposite me is the Rembrandt of remembering... It's James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the emperor of empiricism, which <laughs> is good. Dr. Sam Willis. <laughs> Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted, frankly highly dangerous, unexpected flight into the past. We've got no idea where we're going to go. We've just got a rough idea of where we're going to begin. Each week one of us will take the lead. And this week it's not my turn, it's James's turn. What have you got for me? Okay, wait for it. This week, Sam, I have... The bed. The bed. When I conjure up the word bed, what are the associations that immediately spring to mind? Well, I've had young children for some time, so the bed's quite a rare thing for me. Um, insomnia, not sleeping, um, sleeping, sleeping very well, um, early rising. Mm. I, I'm an early riser. I work um, very early in the morning. Always happen. Right. Um, when you say early, what well, constitutes I mean, early? Given, given choice, I'd get up at five. Five. It's brilliant for writing. Is the house quiet? Um, house is quiet, uh, but my brain works at a billion miles an hour the moment I get out of bed. Right. And it's quite interesting because I think it's quite odd. Occasionally you do meet people who are like that. And there are some very famous figures in history mm. who are early risers. Mm. Mm. Uh, Benjamin Franklin mm. uh, was one of them. Uh, Ernest Hemingway used to write all his books first thing in the morning. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so getting out of bed. Um, I'm a night owl. Okay. I tend the to opposite. work. I tend to work late into the into the night and and again it's about quietness the house is quiet people are in bed and i can i can write into the night which raises the important question of the history of electricity and sleep cycles because it's all to do with with 
how and when you go to bed and your access to daylight. And there have been all sorts of kind of crazy myths associated with this that, you know, in Stone Age times, they had no electricity, so they all went to sleep when it got dark. Candles. Which candles candles changed everything. Um, but I've never believed that. I think everyone has their own rhythms and it's different. It's different according to people. So, so sort of saying everyone used to go to bed early or everyone used to go to mm. bed late. It's nonsense. Mm. It just doesn't make mm. any sense at all. And it also overlooks all of the people who have existed for years in shift work, yeah. um, which raises the important question of working all night, not sleeping. The so, night shift. The night shift. I did some night shifts at the post office when I was a student sorting post for Christmas. Um, that was quite miserable. With a sort of capital M, didn't enjoy it at all. I can imagine. I don't mind. I've done a lot of stuff on boats where I've been awake for say four hours at the night or six mm. hours at night, but being awake all night is completely unnatural to me. Um, but there is now, and there always has been, the huge industries of people who are up and about when when everyone else is asleep, which raises the important question of the history of the BFG, <laughs> <laughs> which is a simply brilliant book. Um, okay, right. Enough of this talk about sleep. I want to get us back to the bed. Yeah. And what I want to talk about as a social and cultural and political historian is the meaning of the bed. And I will argue that the bed has lots of different uses. The bed is a place for, for birth. The bed is, of course, for a place for conception. So it's a bed, you know, the, the bed uh, in terms of, in terms of um, sex and, and attitudes to sex. But it's also the deathbed. Mm. And it's the deathbed that I want to that I want to start with here, and I want to argue. I think that the bed changes meaning. The same bed can change meaning uh, at different times uh, for, dif for different for different occasions. And what I'd like to start us with is a 1591 pamphlet entitled "A Crystal Glass for Christian Women," and it was produced by a man, Philip Stubbs. And it's an account of the death and life of his wife, Catherine. Mm. And Catherine was only 19 and a half years old. And it is the most phenomenal account. I mean, partly this is a, this is a Puritan tract that is supposed to talk about the, the sort of the perfect woman. You know, the crystal glass is basically a mirror being held up so that she reflects all that is all that was deemed to be good about women during this period. But what I'm interested in is the way in which it talks about her, the way in which she dies, and the focus on the deathbed. The deathbed for the Puritans is a really sort of interesting test case because it basically, it's a, it's a way of showing how you lived your life as a good, devout Puritan individual. And for women in particular, women who could not speak up in church, couldn't hold religious office, it is a real sort of powerful um, sort of representation of the kind of role that they could have in society. What is fascinating about this is the kind of the sense of power and agency that this, you know, effectively, this teenage girl mm. who is, is, is incredibly ill, um, you know, is able to call for God. She's got, there are, there are sort of, meditations, that share of visions. And it's all happening on the, the stage it, of her it's bed. It's all happening on the stage of her bed. I yeah. think that's a really good way. This is not about, we often think about the bed as somewhere private and a place of withdrawal. Yeah. But in actual fact, the bed is often a very, very public. Yeah. You think about the, the monarch's deathbed, for example. It's a very public state. But what we have here, I'd just like to read you a little extract. We go through all this sort of 
you know, justification of her faith and all of this kind of thing. But there is this incredible tussle between her and the devil. Huh. Yeah. And all of this is recorded. Is who's recorded come to visit down, her. Who's come to visit her and tempt her on her deathbed. Uh. And part of this is about even when you are weak, God is there and you are able to defy the devil. And I'll just read you a It's the bed is kind of a portal yeah. both into yeah. this world and out of Absolutely. this world. Brilliant. I mean, nowadays... It's the hospital, isn't it? I mean, so many people, you, you, they, they give birth in the hospital and then they go and die in the hospital. I mean, that kind of, that location has changed for us now. But before it was, that portal yeah. was just in your yeah. home on your bed. And it's still the bed in the hospital. It's still the, hos- the true, hospital yeah. bed. Yeah. You know, and people gathering around the hospital bed, you know, independent on what faith you are, you know, they're the final, you know, the rites of yeah. passage at the, at the end, you know, reading you your last rites. Let's get back to this tussle with the devil. Okay, so this tussle with the devil. So the devil comes and tempts her and there's this big, big sort of battle between them and eventually she she sort of defeats him. She she sort of is at peace with the world. She sort of, you know, she calls to God to take her and she departs the world in a very, in a very mild and, and you know, and, 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 and sweet way. But just before that, we've got this huge tussle with, with the devil where she shows, you know, real, a real sense of agency. How now, Satan, what makest thou here? Art thou come to tempt the Lord's servant? I tell thee, thou hellhound, thou hast no part nor portion in me, nor by the grace of God never shall have. I was now, am, and shall be the Lord's forever, ye Satan. I was chosen an elect of Christ unto everlasting salvation before the foundation of the world was laid, and therefore thou must get thee packing, thou damned dog, and go shake thine ears, for in me thou hast naught. So you've got to think this is a woman who is, you know, who's dying, but yet is able to sort of, to defeat the devil in this way. I mean, we have no idea whether this is true. And part of this is a sort of how-to manual. This is how to die a good life. Whether the ordinary person pre, we've got to think here, this is pre, you know, morphine and drugs and <clears throat> the sort of professionalization of death, the sort of intervention by the medical profession to sort of de- treat death in a way and manage death. This is, you know, this is laid bare without any sort of help. That link with the devil is really interesting, actually, because one of the, one of the, the, the key things of, palliative care now is all to do with access to painkillers to yep. make sure yep. that people are calm they're happy yeah but if you haven't got something like morphine which is going to yep. relax you and, and make you calm and everything people are going to be thrashing around in pain yep. Yep. and it's going to look to others like they're they're at war with the devil yeah and the other thing is that they are delusional uh, so, you yes. know, so you often you often have people who aren't aren't in control you you, you just think when you have a when you have a raging temperature you know, and you don't take paracetamol or ibuprofen to bring it down, you know, you are in a really bad state and you are delirious. You know, you're delirious. You're having visions. Talking you're nonsense having, like us no. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But this this is one one part of the bed, the deathbed, which is incredibly, incredibly important. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, the, the permanent sleep. That's what that's about, isn't it? You know. Uh, so you went camping. Yes. Didn't you? Tell us I, about your camping I did. trip. My camping trip. It was fun. It was brilliant. Um, except we got very little sleep. Ah. Um, we, what was your bed like? My bed was an inflatable mattress. Okay. We, I didn't have one of those sort of one of those camp beds. No. And it was also destroyed by the fact that we were woken up in the middle of the night by a flock of seagulls. Oh, that's a shame. We communally, uh, collectively, the, the <laughs> families that had gone away uh, forgot to actually tidy up. 
at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and left bin bags outside and a flock of seagulls came down and attacked them and woke everyone up in the middle of the night. What did you sit on? We sat on a chair, what sort on of a, a folding, right. collapsible okay. chair. Do you know where I'm going? Where, I, I, I think you're going down a down a camp bed route. I am going down a camp okay. bed route. Brilliant. Um, now, I've always been interested in this because if you uh, go to sort of a really impressive antique furniture dealer, occasionally you get these these camp beds. They're called campaign beds. Okay, they're designed for army officers to take their furniture with them to the middle of India or wherever they're going, you know, kind of over the Himalayas. And they're usually beautifully made walnut chests. They're incredibly heavy. Um, so some poor sod's got to carry that around or it's going to get strapped to a mule. But there was a huge industry which was linked to the expansion of the British Empire to do with providing British officers, so high-ranking uh, British soldiers, with a measure of comfort whilst they were out on campaign. Now, lots of these survive now, and that they really are, are magnificent things. It was different in the Navy, um, but the Army I want to talk about particularly, because one of the problems, it's, it's very much associated with um, mobility. So uh, there's, a, there's a fabulous quote here about, um, well, in the Times, was, someone noted, a reporter noted on the 2nd of February, 1858, this is all to do with the Siege of Lucknow, uh, in his diary, so Colin Campbell's baggage extended for 18 miles. Goodness me. And that's one man's baggage. 18 miles. So he's not just out there to campaign, he's to kind of, it's the, the sort of the visibility, the, the show, the theatre of having all of this luggage, which was, you know, as important as getting a good night's sleep. I mean, they probably weren't getting much sleep anyway. Um, to a certain extent, it was um, it was replicated in the Navy, replicated in the Navy, um, I was at HMS Victory at the weekend and uh, looking at Nelson's chair bed. So rather than having a chest that you would kind of strap to a mule, in the Navy, um, one of the solutions, there were lots of different solutions, was to have a comfy sort of armchair, mm. the, the legs extended out, and then it, then it would become a bed. Now, of course, other people wouldn't, wouldn't have access to this. Mm. But what the Navy was good at was providing you with hammocks so sailors got hammocks but what is interesting is that all of the, the bed and the bedding the mattress the sheets whatever the stuff that makes it comfy mm. in the navy was um was was a personal supply so you, you were given a hammock yep. and you had to supply your bed and your bedding and there's a wonderful letter here so this is from uh, october 1797 after the battle of camperdown this is when the british have been fighting the dutch after a big victory and this is signed by William Bly of the Mutiny of the Bounty ah. fame. Okay. He is desperately concerned about all of the sailors who have lost um, all of this material. So we've got a William Heatherby, he's lost one bed and bedding and an outside jacket. Jonah Swan, he's lost a bed and a blanket. Walter Hewen, a bed and bedding. Someone's lost a pair of shoes. Um, some poor saw George Peach lost his trousers. I don't know how you lose your trousers in a naval battle. But he's lost his trousers. But the majority of them, in fact, all of them, have lost their bed and the bedding. So this is an example of the captain of the ship, William Bly, writing to the Admiralty, asking for them to replace what the sailors had lost in the course of the battle, because it's their own personal property. Um, so it's actually being, he's applying to the Navy and trying to get them to support and to be generous to those people who have sacrificed so much for him. So that's a really interesting aspect to it. But coming back to the, the army side of things, it's all to do with the rise of the motor car, and it's to do with mobility, and it's to do 
with the British army not being prepared properly at the beginning of the First World War. And it all comes down to bags and baggage. And tents. And tents and so, so much more. It was was copied. This is a brilliant thing. See, uh, describe that then. This looks like a steel four-poster bed, very thin sort of posts, and then what looks like a sprung uh, cloth going going across it, so a sort of very elaborate camp bed. Okay, and so this is the same bed? Ah, oh, all blinged up with silk and and a big canopy over it. It's green, it's orange. The frame suddenly makes sense, doesn't it? Yes. The first one, it doesn't make sense because it looks like a hospital bed with a high frame, but then... Very uncomfortable. it, It is essentially a tent. Goodness me. It's a tent frame. Who, who's, whose bed is that? That's Napoleon's bed. That's ah, Napoleon's camp me. bed. Quite quite a short bed, is it? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it might be. Um, there's a description of it here. The six feet were mounted on wheels and the vertical poles or rises at the corners were topped with brass or gilt bronze balls. The imperiale was fixed to the rises below the four balls and was topped with a metal plaque which supported a small dome with a small copper globe <laughs> set upon it. So he's getting mm. more and more blingy here. Uh, the mattress was made of striped twill attached to iron and brass hooks set in the frame. When folded away, the bed ensemble was carried in a solid leather case. So that is Napoleon's camp bed. Goodness me. Um, now, what's really interesting about this is that he died in it. He, he took it when he was captured and he was sent away to mm. exile in St. Helena. He took his bed with him. Well, he was allowed to take his bed Port- with him. Portable, easy to carry. Um, and it's a kind of a personal item that could have been easily denied, denied this, mm. this man. Um, he took it with him. So that's not only his camp bed, that's the bed that he died in. And also... Duke, so we're back to the deathbed. Back to the deathbed. And one more example, the Duke of Wellington, he died in reasonable comfort at home, um, or certainly in a house, but he died in his camp bed. So there's something going on there about soldiers having lived a life on campaign, or sort of wanting to sort of exist in their memory and choosing to carry on sleeping in their right. campaign right. bed at the end of their lives. So it has this kind of emotional connection yeah. with them. I think where, where we're going with this is also the huge variety of beds that we're, that we're talking about. I mean, you think about how the bed as a concept itself, as an invention, has sort of has changed over time. You know, you think back to very sort of basic beds that people would have slept on, you know, in, in the medieval period, you know, a bed for somebody who was pretty poor would be no more than 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 straw, mm. you know, and you would put it, you would put on a cloak or a blanket, and you would quite literally, if you were lucky, hit hit the hay. Yeah, ah, yeah, no, nah. like where I'm going with that. One. <laughs> um, but then, then over time, we see you know much more sophisticated hierarchical beds, you know, for people of, of status and and honour. What do you think? You of, hit the duck feathers. You hit the duck. You, <laughs> you hit. You hit. You hit the. Sh- you hit the silk. You hit the silk. What do you think of this? Ah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's... Um, it's a bling bed, isn't it? Yeah, that's massive. It's a huge four-poster bed with, with um, very ornate pillars. It, that, that looks like it's made out of very carved, heavily carved wood. And then attached to the bottom of it, you've got lots of tassely silk, all in red and yellow, with an enormous bed. And then behind it, you've got... Wow. Yeah, so that's a kind of a carved bed head. Yeah. Very, very ornate. It looks like carved oak, so it's dark. Um, wow, what is that? This is, if you want to see this, go along to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, Kensington. This is the Great Bed of Ware, okay. which is thought to have been constructed in about 1590 or thereabouts. Hmm. And it was constructed for an inn 
in um, in Ware in Hertfordshire. And this was a status bed. This was a bed that you were supposed to, you know, that you would want to go and and sort of see. This is the sort of equivalent of a, you know, a boutique hotel. A, a the penthouse in the, the penthouse. Right? The penthouse. You know, come come and sort of and, and sleep in this fantastic opulent bed. It becomes so famous that in Twelfth Night, you know, Toby Belch is referring to a piece of paper that is big enough to fit the great bed uh, of wear. I mean, the, the question that immediately comes to me there is, how many people can you fit in that bed? It's huge. It, it, it mu- this must be the equivalent of a super, super, super sort of king size. But this must be sort of 10, 12 feet wide. Yeah. You know, this I is, mean, this you're, is you're, an enormous bed, but it's supposed to be for two, two people or one, one person, okay. which brings us to sleeping patterns okay. and sleeping habits. You know, who, how many people share a bed? You think about a husband and wife, mm. you know, and, and whether they share a bed. You think about, you know, when a husband is away, a, a female servant might, might share a bed for, for, for company. Um, if you have a look at architectural plans for 16th, 17th century prodigy houses. That's also the fear of being asleep. Or it's fear of being alone. Okay. It's possibly fear of being alone. But if you have a look at architectural plans, you know, people will have separate bedrooms. So husbands and wives don't necessarily sleep together. It would be quite common for two men to share a bed, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there would be nothing sort of, nothing sort of un- untoward with that. But for people who, for two male servants to share a bed, because it was literally about sharing a bed. Space and, and, and warmth. And space well. and warmth and getting yeah. sleep. Where boundaries would be crossed in, say, the 17th century, the 16th century, would be if they were occupying a bed at a particular time of day. Oh. But was it was not a day when when two men um, and we're talking you know we're talking you know hundreds of years ago when two men you know shouldn't be, weren't weren't sort of being seen to sort of share a bed as it wasn't seen as appropriate. So you know I think the bed has a has a really sophisticated yeah you know history. We can see we're also thinking about you know we what we haven't talked about is the kinds of things associated with beds. Curtains for for privacy and yeah. warmth, which we have in this great bed of, of wear. Mattresses. We've talked a little bit about mattresses. Quilts. Mosquito nets. Mosquito nets. Quilts. You know, and quilts. You know, which are beautifully. Oh, the beautiful handmade. Be- be- yeah, mm. exactly. Which is all about you know communities of women getting together, stitching together. Uh, it's about female sociability. It's about female networking. It is about if you think about the kinds of. Not only the kinds of labour that goes into it, but also the kinds of designs that go into it. This is often about the transmission of family history through fabric like that. So the bed is incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. Pepys, Samuel Pepys on the bed. Okay. Samuel Pepys, if you read his diary, Samuel Pepys never had sex right. in, in a bed. For, and Pepys was having sex all the time. But for Pepys, you know, sex was not with his wife, but it was with a whole host of other people and it was in corridors it was in was it was it in other in, people's beds it, was, it wasn't in other people's beds no it was elsewhere right, it was okay. around it was in sort of secret corners and yeah. you know when when he sort of had <laughs> these secret assignations and he was a with, busy man with, he was a very <laughs> he was a very 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 busy man but for Pete's the bed is about we're back to the bed being this sort of sociable space yeah the bed is a public bed the bed was where you did business you know he records you know being in bed with his wife reading talking one of his constant refrains is, and so to bed. 
at yes, the end of yes, each, yes, 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 of each. So we know we know a lot about sleeping habits. But you know, I think that raises the question of, of what you do in a bed, which is yeah. really interesting. So so reading, chatting, you know, it yeah. certainly isn't just about sleeping at all. Yeah. Um, pillow pillow fights. Pillow fights. Yes, all of that. Pillow talk. Yeah. Pillow talk, intimacy, it, it's, it's also about intimacy. And if you have a look at how the, the history of the bed has developed, what we've moved to in the, in the sort of modern era is, a, is domestic privacy, the sort of rise of, you know, of the bed as a sort of, as a sort of romantic association with two people. We see the rise of things like the, the duvet, the silk sheets, mm. you know, it's all about, it's all about that kind of thing. You look at how fancy country hotels would, advertise and market themselves the bed is often you know a really key yeah. element yeah. of that well we've gone everywhere again Good haven't we yes where, where have we gone <laughs> recap we have gone uh, india campaigning in india you started with um the devil and the bed the devil and the bed we thought about different types of bed hitting the hay hitting the silk we've seen um, that enormous bed the bed of where 1590s we thought about behavior in the bed and how how people behave and how that changes when they get into a bed, um, which is fascinating. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, there we go. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, do remember you're the most important part of this podcast. Get in touch with us and tell us your stories about beds in history. Send us photographs of beds in history. And of course, make suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, that's all. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Goodbye.